0: though I have been a teacher of the Bible for over 40 years, every once in a while I will come across a passage of scripture that at first just baffles me. It just baffles me. Now, I may understand the various details, the information that's contained in the passage, but what escapes me is putting it all together. What escapes me is the purpose of the passage, the theme of the passage, the the point of the passage. In other words, the author's intended meaning of the text, which is really what we want to understand. So when I'm faced with a passage that baffles me like this, I have a process of what I do. I read it over a number of times, familiarizing myself with the content of the verses, all the while looking for a common thread that runs through the passage and ties it together into a meaningful Theme, while at the same time I'm asking the Lord to enlighten me, to give me understanding. In addition, I read a lot of commentaries to see what other reputable Bible teachers have to say about the passage. And inevitably, as I work through this process of trying to comprehend the meaning and the purpose and the theme of the text, the Lord does give the needed enlightenment. He's never let me down. And what at first seemed like a baffling passage of Scripture soon emerges as a very meaningful passage of the Word of God. This morning as we continue our study of Luke, we have come to one of those types of passages. I'm referring to Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. So I invite you to open your Bibles to that passage. And here's what we read. Soon afterwards, he began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod steward, and Susanna, and many others who were contributing to their support out of their private means. Now, As you can see, this is a new chapter in the Gospel of Luke. We begin chapter 8. It's the opening paragraph of the new chapter. And it consists of these three verses that tell us essentially this, that Jesus traveled around Israel going from village to village, town to town, preaching the kingdom of God, while his 12 apostles accompanied him, along with some women who he had previously healed, who were now financially supporting his ministry. Now, those are the details. That's the information we're given in these verses. And it would be very easy to just look at them, skip over them, just dismiss them as sort of a brief historical note, serving as an introduction, as a transition to what follows, because what follows is a very meaningful passage of Scripture. It is the parable of the sower. But... I want you to know this is more than a mere historical note by Luke. This is more than an editorial comment by Luke. This is more than a transition to a new subject by Luke. See, what Luke has done for us in these verses is he's told us, note this, how Jesus carried on his earthly ministry. In just three verses, Luke gives us tremendous insight into the Lord's approach to ministry. This is really his philosophy of ministry how he conducted his work, his strategy for ministry, how he carried out his task of evangelizing the lost people of Israel. And in doing this, what Luke has revealed to us, folks, is Christ's model for how all ministry should be carried out, whether you are in full-time Christian service or not. See, regardless of who you are, regardless of what you do, if you are a Christian if you have been converted to Jesus Christ, regardless of what age you are, how long you've been saved, then God has called you to some type of ministry. You don't have an option. This is what scripture teaches. The apostle Paul said these words in Ephesians 4 verses 11 through 12. And he, meaning Christ, gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastor-teachers. So Christ has given gifted men to teach you the word of God. He's given them to whom? To the church. Here's the reason why. Verse 12. For the equipping of the saints. You are the saints for the work of service. It is your work of service for which you are equipped. In other words, it's for your ministry. For your sphere of ministry. To the building up of the body of Christ. So God has given pastors to equip you to carry on your work of service. That is your ministry. Maybe large, maybe small, but you have a ministry. If you're a Christian, you are a minister. Now, ministry may not be your full-time vocation, but you are still a minister with an important work of service to do. And by understanding how Jesus conducted the work that the Father had given him, what we are given here is a perfect example to follow in how we are to conduct our ministries regardless of its fear. It also helps as we evaluate other men's ministries, other pastors, churches we might be considering going to, conferences where we sit under someone's ministry, to evaluate them as to whether their ministry is biblical or not. And this is vital for us to understand because so many ministries today are not modeled after biblical principles. They're worldly, they're gimmicky, they're market-oriented. One Bible teacher commenting on the difference between Christ style of ministry and the style of ministry we often see in Christian work today. He said this, Jesus' simple, fixed, and precisely focused ministry stands in sharp contrast to modern concepts of the ministry. Mimicking worldly management theories, ministries today are often designed to have the widest possible impact and with that goal in mind to be diverse, eclectic, tolerant, And culturally connected. Enormous amounts of time, money, and manpower are poured into strategies, plans, and activities designed to influence as many people as possible. The goal is to create an atmosphere of perceptions, cultural expectations, and felt needs that can be met at the broadest level by the ministry. The divine model of ministry by the Lord Jesus Christ in the plan and power of heaven needed none of those devices. And that's exactly what they are, they're just human devices. So, how did Jesus carry on his ministry? Well, from a human standpoint, he certainly didn't have a lot going for him. He rejected aligning himself with the elite religious establishment of Israel, instead choosing 12 really not very impressive men to be his apostles. His message turned off a lot of people because it was so demanding, it was so narrow. He criticized and antagonized the most influential religious leaders in Israel he hung around with the outcasts of Jewish society rather than cozying up to the rich and wealthy and consequently then he had a very limited ministry income depending solely upon his few followers to financially support him in short Jesus just didn't follow the modern day pattern of success he was not politically correct he didn't campaign to get wealthy donors He didn't compromise the truth in order to advance his cause and gain the widest possible following. And yet, despite all of these so-called limitations, in spite of doing all of these things contrary to the ways of the world, Jesus has impacted the world like no one else ever has in human history. The message of Christ, the message of the gospel, has spread from its small, humble beginnings. In Israel to all over the world, there are followers of Christ in every country on this planet. Hundreds of thousands of churches that preach His word can be found across the globe. And His name is known to millions, even those who don't embrace Him as Lord. And in large measure, Christ's remarkable influence in the world is due to the way He carried out His three-year earthly ministry. And today, we're going to discover how He managed His ministry, what His strategy was, what his approach was to ministry, what his philosophy of ministry was. Because in these three verses, what Luke does is he reveals four elements of Christ's ministry. And they all serve as a model for us as we carry out our own ministries. With the first element being this, his method. What was his method? He was to proclaim the truth to all, regardless. We begin where the chapter begins. First one. Soon afterwards, he began going around from one city... And village to another now as luke sets the scene for us he begins with the words soon afterwards meaning what meaning soon after the previous incident he's just told us about namely the dinner party involving this immoral woman who anointed christ's feet and the self-righteous pharisee who refused to honor the lord we studied this just last week so soon after that incident jesus began to do something And what he began to do was he began to travel around the region of Galilee in the northern part of Israel, going from one town to another. In other words, Jesus went on a preaching tour of the Galilee. And what's most significant about this is that in preaching to the people in these towns and villages, Jesus gave everybody the opportunity to hear him And his message. And the reason that that is significant is because he did not limit himself to preaching only to those who he knew would come to believe in him. That is to say, he didn't preach to the elect. He didn't preach to those whom the Father had chosen to give him. He preached to all. You see, during the three years of our Lord's ministry, he made it abundantly clear that only those whom the Father gave to him, meaning the elect would come to him. He said this on a number of occasions and in a variety of different ways, especially it's prominent in the Gospel of John. So for example, in John chapter six, verse thirty seven, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I'll certainly not cast out. But all that the Father gives to me inevitably will come to me. John six forty four No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him that's that irresistible drawing and I will raise him up on the last day John chapter 10 verses 26 and 27 but you do not believe because you are not my sheep my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me John 15 verse 16 you did not choose me but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit John 17 verse 6 I have ministered your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Just a sampling of the many verses that Jesus is recorded to have said about God choosing people who inevitably will believe in him. And yet with all these clear statements uh, those whom the Father has chosen will respond to the gospel, and only those will respond to the gospel. Yet Jesus still made sure that others in these towns, and these villages, even those who hadn't been chosen, that they heard the truth. And in doing it this way, the Lord has given us an example of how we are to witness, to evangelize others. Regardless of whether you have a public preaching ministry or a private personal Ministry of witnessing to others where you build a relationship and you eventually share the truth and the gospel to them. You are to follow Christ's method of ministry by proclaiming the gospel to everyone without making any distinctions. You don't look at somebody and say, I think this person seems receptive. They might be an elect person, so I'm going to witness to them. We witness to all. This is exactly the point, at least one of the points, of the parable in the next passage of the sower. I don't need to take the time to read it to you, but in verses 4 through 8, Jesus speaks about a sower who went out and just scattered seed. The seed is the Word of God. The soil on which the seed fell, that's the human heart, response of the human heart. Most reject one soil, one type of soil is receptive. The point of this is to say that the work of the sower is just to scatter the seed. He doesn't go around testing the soil. He just scatters the seed. That's all he does. You see, like the sower in the parable, where to do just that? We are scatterers of the seed. We disperse the word of God where we go, regardless of what people do with it. Listen, it's not our responsibility to make people respond positively to the gospel, it's not our responsibility. We can't change their hearts. However, our responsibility is just to disperse the seed of the gospel, make sure that they hear the gospel. And sometimes, sometimes that's very challenging for people like us who believe in the sovereignty of God, people like us who would embrace the label of being Calvinists, people who believe in sovereign election, because it's challenging, because we tend to reason like this, if only the elect will come to faith in Christ, then why? bother witnessing at all to people since God in his word assures us that all human uh, he has given to Christ will eventually come to Christ if only the elect will come to him and it's inevitable then why should we witness well R.C. Sprawl tells an interesting and enlightening story about this about the time he was in seminary and that very question was put to him in a class he says this I'll never forget the terrifying experience of being quizzed on this point by Dr. John Gerstner in a seminary class. There are about 20 of us seated in a semicircle in the classroom. He posed the question All right, gentlemen, if God has sovereignly decreed election from all eternity, why should we be concerned about evangelism? I breathed a sigh of relief when Gerstner started the interrogation on the left end of the semicircle since I was sitting on the last seat on the right. I took comfort in the hope that the question would never get around to me. The comfort was short lived. The first student replied to Dr. Gerstner's query, I don't know, sir, that question has always plagued me. Second student said, it beats me. The third just shook his head and dropped his gaze towards the floor. In rapid succession, the students all passed on the question. The dominoes were falling in my direction. Well, Mr. Sproul, how would you answer? I wanted to vanish into thin air or, or find a hiding place in the floorboards, but there was no escape. I stammered a muttered reply. Dr. Gerstner said, Speak up. In tentative words, I said, Well, Dr. Gerstner, I know this isn't the answer that you're looking for, but, but one small reason we should still be concerned about evangelism is that, well, uh, you, you, you know, after all, Christ does command us to evangelize. Gerstner's eyes, he said, started to flame. He said, ah, I see, Mr. Sproul. One small reason is that your Savior, the Lord of glory, the King of kings, has so commanded it? A small reason, Mr. Sproul? Is it barely significant to you that the same sovereign God who sovereignly decrees your election also sovereignly demands your involvement in the work of evangelism? He said, oh, how I wish I had never used the word small. (laughs) I got Gerstner's point. And folks, all of us need to get Dr. Gerstner's point. We evangelize all because Jesus Christ, our Lord, has commanded us to proclaim the gospel to all. We make no distinction. We pick out no people who look like they might be the elect. Matthew twenty-eight nineteen is what's commonly known as the Great Commission. This is our commission, our command. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. All the nations. John chapter 20, verse 21, As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Since the Father sent Christ to tell all, He sends us to tell all. We are to evangelize. Because we have been commanded to evangelize. It is not a small reason. But also, we need to see that evangelism is a privilege. It's a privilege. Do you th- realize that God could have used any method He wanted to evangelize the lost? He could have commissioned angels to preach the gospel, He could have written the gospel message in the sky so that everybody could see it. Instead, He gave us the honor as ambassadors of Christ. And that's exactly how the Apostle Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5.20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This is what we are. We are, like Paul, we are Christ's ambassadors. We are his representatives who speak on behalf of him, telling people his message of the gospel. It's not our message, it's his then we plead with them to be reconciled to God by placing their faith in Christ for salvation. So, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then follow Him. Follow Him in His method of witnessing to all kinds of people. Listen, if your theology diminishes your evangelistic zeal, then you need to change your theology because it's not biblical theology. It's not at all. God's business is to choose the elect. That's His business. We don't know who the elect are. Spurgeon said, if we knew who the elect were by a yellow stripe on the back of each elect person, we would be doing nothing but lifting up the shirts and looking at the back and seeing if they had that yellow stripe. He was being, being somewhat cynical, sarcastic about that. We don't know who the elect are. Our business is to share the gospel. It's God's business whom he's chosen. So this is the way Jesus carried out his ministry of evangelism. His method was to speak to all. That is his method. And if we're going to follow him, we need to follow him in his method. So evangelize to all. You do it by being gracious, by being loving, by looking for open doors. We don't ram the gospel down people's throats, but we do pray for the Lord to open doors and we share. We share the gospel. So that's the first element of our Lord's model for ministry. The second element is his message. His message, first his method, now his message. What was his message? It was the kingdom of God. As Luke continues in verse 1, he says, Soon afterwards, he began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. So, having told us the method of his ministry, which was to proclaim the truth to everybody in those villages, those towns, now what we discover is the message, the specific truth that he was preaching when he was with those people. The message was the kingdom of God. What exactly does that mean? Well, the expression kingdom of God is the sphere. It's the realm in which God as king reigns over his people. There is a future millennial kingdom coming of Christ's reign on earth, That has obviously it hasn't arrived yet, but we're in a time now where his kingdom still reigns as he reigns in the hearts of his people. So when an individual accepts Jesus Christ as their Lord, their Savior, they are moved, they are transferred from the kingdom of darkness, which is ruled by Satan, into the kingdom of God, which is ruled by Christ. That's the way Paul put it in Colossians one thirteen. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Now notice exactly how Jesus communicated this message of the kingdom. Luke uses two different words to describe how Jesus conveyed the truth of God's kingdom. He says that he proclaimed and preached the kingdom of God. Those are two different Greek words. The first word, proclaim, means to make an announcement as a herald would in representing a king. The word carries with it the thought of not simply making an announcement, but of proclaiming that announcement with authority because you're representing the king. You're giving the king's announcement, so it comes with authority. You're speaking, in other words, in the name of your king. The second word used to describe how Jesus communicated the kingdom of God is the word preached. And this particular word is the Greek word from which we get our English word evangelizing, which means literally to announce the good news. So when Jesus came into a town, he publicly and authoritatively announced the good news that sinners could enter the kingdom of God. I love the way Bible teacher G. Campbell Morgan put this. He said he was proclaiming the kingdom of God, the rule of God, the fact that the Lord reigneth. That was the good news that Jesus preached to men. He came to tell men, moreover, that this kingdom was available to the human soul through grace. He himself was the king, acting in grace and declaring that the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, had made a way by which those in revolt could be reconciled. And though Luke doesn't elaborate on this, he doesn't tell us anything more about how Jesus expressed himself, but we know from other statements in the New Testament that when Jesus spoke of the kingdom of God, he said that the way to enter it was through repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, right at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus said, we read from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, repentance simply means to forsake your sin. It involves a change of mind about your sin so that you turn away from whatever you know is wrong. That's repentance. The Lord made it very clear that without repentance, no one can enter His kingdom. It's not an option. Luke chapter 13 verse 5 says, our Lord speaking, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now Jesus here is speaking about some people who had tragically died. And what the Lord is doing, he is warning those who are listening to him of the necessity of them repenting of their sin. Otherwise, they were in danger, he said, of perishing under God's judgment. Unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. You'll perish like these people perished, lost and condemned for all of eternity. But repentance from sin is only one side of the coin. Faith and repentance are two sides of exactly the same coin. They are not really separate. You need faith to enter God's kingdom too. So we turn from our sin, but we turn to Christ. That's what scripture teaches. We turn to Christ and we trust him for salvation. This is precisely what Jesus taught throughout his ministry. Mark chapter 1 verse 15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. They go hand in hand. Repentance and faith. So right at the beginning of our Lord's ministry, he gave the requirement for entering his kingdom. Repent and believe the gospel. The gospel being what? The gospel being the good news that Christ saved sinners on the sole basis of his substitutionary death on their behalf. Now this, folks, this is the message that Jesus proclaimed, the kingdom of God. And he did it by speaking with authority and by announcing it as good news. So if you want to pattern your ministry after his, and how do you apply this to your life? Well, for one thing, you make sure that the message that you give to others is the message that Jesus gave. And that means you have to tell people that they're sinners and that they need to repent of their sin. You can't leave that out. It also means you have to declare the truth about Christ. He's not only Savior, he's Lord. He's king. He's the king who rules those in his kingdom. So that when one comes to him for salvation, they not only must trust him as their savior by placing their confidence in his death for their salvation, but at the same time they recognize him for who he is, not only savior but Lord. So that there's a heart attitude of submission to his authority over their lives you never tell somebody that you can continue your sin it doesn't matter just pray a few words invite Jesus into your heart and that's all you need to do that is not the gospel that is not the gospel you are misleading people it's not the gospel that Jesus preached he told people that they were lost sinners who needed to repent of their sin he told them to enter through the narrow gate for the gate he said is wide the way is broad that leads to destruction And there are many who enter through it, for the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. The gate meaning himself. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He told them that God's justice required that sin be paid for before one can go to heaven, and that out of grace and mercy, he was the one who satisfied that justice by laying down his life for his people. And Jesus proclaimed these truths with authority without fearing man's response you see to pattern your ministry after christ you have to have the same message he gave in fact you know what jesus commands us to give the same message at the end of luke's gospel in luke chapter 24 which who knows how many years before we get to this We read this. He said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You're witnesses of these things. So we preach the same message that God forgives sinners on the basis of his death on the cross, but we enter into the kingdom through repentance and faith. But in addition to proclaiming the same message that Jesus gave, we have to speak with the same kind of authority and a sense of confidence in what we're saying, because we are representing the king of kings. It's his message. It's not ours. So when we tell people the good news of Christ, they can be delivered from the darkness of their sins and be brought into the kingdom. We don't apologize for our message As though we're just sorry that, you know, we might have come across so narrow that it might offend you. Sorry, no. We're not embarrassed by the message because others might think it to be foolish and nonsense. Most people will think it to be foolish and nonsense. Paul said that in 1 Corinthians 1. He spoke of the foolishness of preaching. But we say with Paul in Romans one i I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God unto salvation. We proclaim the gospel with boldness, yet with graciousness and with love as the greatest news any individual will ever hear. It is far greater than telling someone you're free of cancer, as wonderful as that is. You're free of condemnation. You're free of being a child of wrath. You're free of the penalty of your sins. You're free to go to heaven. That's the good news. Now, so far we've seen two elements then of Christ's model for ministry. His method, proclaim the gospel to all. His message, the kingdom of God. Now we see a third element of Christ's model for ministry and that is his strategy. What was his strategy? Very simply, it was to train others. Notice the last few words of verse 1. The 12 were with him. And this is a reference to the 12 apostles whom Jesus had selected to be his authorized official representatives. And what we learn from these words is that when Jesus traveled from town to town during his preaching tour, he wasn't alone. These 12 men accompanied him. Now they weren't preaching yet. They were just watching. They were observing. Because he was training them. Training them because after his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension back to heaven, it was these men minus Judas who would carry on his work on earth. See, Jesus had a very definite strategy. Nothing haphazard about his ministry. A very definite strategy when it came to his three-year ministry. Although he ministered, obviously, to very large crowds... The focus of his ministry was to concentrate on training these 12 men. And listen, that was not not an easy task because these were very flawed individuals. They were weak in faith. Jesus often called them men of little faith. They had problems with their pride, frequently debating amongst themselves who was greatest in the kingdom of God. They were often slow to grasp spiritual truth in spite of the fact saying, yes, we understand I challenge you to find out until after the Holy Spirit came upon them what they understood. Sometimes they were quite outspoken in their ignorance, as in the case of Peter, who often put his foot in his mouth. And they all succumbed, all of them, to cowardice and fear by abandoning Jesus in his moment of great need when he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. So these were not the easiest men to train But the Lord poured His life into them for three years, taking them with Him wherever He went so they could learn from Him by listening to His words, observing His actions. And eventually, after Jesus returned to heaven, they would be empowered by the Holy Spirit so that they would effectively carry on the work of their ministry. Listen, if you want to pattern your ministry after Jesus, then you need to have the same strategy that Jesus had. You need to invest your life your time, your energy into training others. It simply means you need to disciple someone. We've come up with a fancy word of mentoring and other words, but basically it simply means you need to disciple someone. And you may think, no, I, I, really, I really can't. I need someone to disciple me. That may be true, but you need to disciple someone else. You may think, well, I've just, I've been, I'm too young of a Christian. I was just saved recently. That's fine. There's always somebody who's younger than you in the Lord and knows less than you in the Lord. If you were saved last week, there's someone who's getting saved this week who doesn't know as much as you know. The point is, you don't have an option. Being a disciple is what we are, but we are to disciple others. That is not an option. Go make disciples, Jesus said. That's the great commission. Not just tell people about Christ, lead them to the Lord, and then leave them on their own. No, you invest your life in them and if you feel very inadequate doing that then join the club we all feel inadequate doing that but you do it anyway how do you disciple someone you don't have to read a book on discipleship i have many books in my library on discipleship basically it comes down to this do life with them spend time with them teach them let them observe you in various situations circumstances and then you give them opportunities to minister under your guidance if you say, well, I don't really know that much, I know a little bit, then, then get some good books that you'll both go over and, and learn or bring them to somebody who might have some expertise in a field that they need to know. But by all means, you need to disciple someone. This is exactly how Paul conducted his ministry. This wasn't, this wasn't isolated. It wasn't just Jesus. This is a biblical pattern. And Paul lived by this. Though Paul ministered to many people he chose to pour his life into a few key men who would in turn pour their lives into other key men and on and on it went. Listen to what Paul said as he wrote to Timothy one of those key men that he had poured his life into. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust these, these things that I've taught you, Timothy, to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now, Paul wrote these words to Timothy just before his death at the hands of the Roman authorities. He was in prison when he wrote this. Knowing that his execution was imminent, he wanted his ministry of teaching the truth to not die with him, to continue to multiply. So he reminded Timothy that he had taught him the truth. For years he had been teaching Timothy. And Timothy was to entrust those same words precious truths to faithful men who would in turn pass them on to other faithful men who would in turn pass them on to other faithful men and now we're at the year 2023 as people have passed it on folks that's the process of multiplying disciples that's how it works you are to take somebody under your wing and teach them no matter where you are in your understanding of scripture as i said there's always somebody who knows less than you do so if you discern that this person is teachable, and that's the key, don't pour your life into someone who's not teachable, you discern that they have a heart to grow in Christ, then you approach them, you pray and you ask the Lord to prepare their hearts, and you approach them about discipling them, and then you just meet with them on a regular basis and you teach them. That's how it works. Listen, none of us are going to live forever. We all want a lasting meaningful legacy. If you want a lasting legacy that counts for eternity, then invest your life in training someone who in turn will train someone else. This is what Jesus did. This is what Paul did. This is what Timothy did. This is what the men that Timothy invested his life in did and so forth. And this is what you need to do. Don't go out of here saying, well, that's very interesting, but I'm not going to do anything. Then you're being disobedient. As the Lord gives you wisdom and who you should train, just Go for it. If you make mistakes along the way, well, that's life. We all do. So far, then, we've seen three elements of our Lord's ministry, his method, his message, his strategy. As Luke brings his section about ministry, the Lord's ministry, to a close, he gives the fourth and the final elements of Christ's ministry, and that is his financial support, which came from those to whom he ministered. Verses 2 and 3. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses, Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna and many others who were contributing to their support out of their private means. Now, as we learned in the previous verse, during his preaching tour of Galilee, Jesus certainly was not alone. He had his 12 apostles with him. But now, here in verses 2 and 3, we discover surprisingly that there were a number of women who were also a part of this traveling entourage. Now, I say surprisingly because the rabbis of that day generally held a very low view of women, so low that they refused to even teach a woman. However, however, Jesus was different. Unlike his rabbinical contemporaries, he held women in the highest of esteem. In fact, One of the unique features of the Gospel of Luke, I don't know if you realize this, one of the unique features of the Gospel of Luke is that Luke makes it a point to highlight the prominence that Jesus actually gave to women. Dr. William Hendrickson, great theologian, has written a number of fantastic commentaries. He writes about this in his commentary on Luke. Here's what Dr. Hendrickson said. He said, The beloved physician's book has been called The Gospel of Womanhood. For the Savior's tender and profound regard for women comes to the fore in this gospel more clearly than in any other. Note, for example, the prominence accorded to Mary, the mother of Jesus, and to Elizabeth. Remember also that Anna, the prophetess, and Joanna, the loyal follower, they're mentioned in this gospel. The beautiful story in which Mary, sister of Martha and Lazarus, makes the right choice is told here. This holds... Two, for the stirring report about Christ's kindness bestowed upon the widow of Nain and upon the sinful woman who anointed the Lord. And here, folks, we have another example of the high regard that Jesus had for women because unlike the other rabbis of his day, he allowed them to accompany him on his preaching tour. This was unheard of. This was just unheard of. Now, how many women there actually were in this group, we're not told Luke only says some women. But what we do know, because the text says this, is that at some point prior to this trip, Jesus had healed these women of either demon possession or some very serious type of illness. Now, Luke mentions three of these women by name, with the first one being Mary, who he says was called Magdalene. We commonly call her today Mary Magdalene, but I want you to know Magdalene was not her last name. There were no last names in that day. Magdalene is a reference to her hometown of Magdala. Magdala, It was located on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, about three miles south of Capernaum, about three miles north of Tiberias. Those going on the tour to Israel will be visiting the ruins of Magdala. Now this is the Mary who later, after the Lord was raised from the dead, she was the first one to see the Lord outside of his tomb and she actually had a conversation with him. You read about that at the end of the Gospel of John. Therefore, she has the distinction, the great honor of being the first witness of our Lord's resurrection because she went and told the other disciples, I've seen the Lord, he's been raised from the dead. However, although Mary is honored in the Bible, sadly her reputation has been damaged over the years because many Christians just assume that she was a prostitute. However, the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible never says she was a prostitute, a harlot. All we're told about her by Luke is that Jesus had cast seven demons out of her. That's all we're told. And there is no indication in Scripture that demon possession and immorality are connected. Mary of Magdala. The second woman that Luke mentions is a woman by the name of Joanna, who is the wife of Cusa, Herod's steward. Now the fact that this woman was married to a man who was Herod's steward, very likely meaning the manager, who was the manager of Herod's estate or perhaps some high ranking official in Herod's government. The fact that she was married to this man of such a high estate would seem to indicate that she was a woman of some wealth. Like Mary of Magdala, Joanna also would later be at the tomb of the Lord and one of his first witnesses of the resurrection. Third woman mentioned by Luke is a woman by the name of Susanna, and we know absolutely nothing more about her other than her name and what's written about her here because she doesn't show up anywhere else in the New Testament. Now, the primary reason that Luke mentions these three women is because each of them financially contributed to the Lord and the work of his ministry. We read at the end of verse three, and many others who were contributing to their support out of their private means. In other words, these three women, along with many others, which probably means other women, but it's possible that Luke also means some men were involved in this, contributing as well. They financially supported Jesus and his work. Now, we don't often think about this, but have you ever wondered how Jesus, as an itinerant rabbi, and his 12 apostles, how they were sustained financially. He was not stationed to one synagogue where they would pay his salary. He traveled all around Israel teaching. He was a traveling rabbi. So how was he financially sustained? Well, one Bible teacher who has thought a great deal about this had this to say about our Lord's financial resources. He said, during these years of public ministry, our Lord had no visible means of support. He had been a carpenter in Nazareth, living by his own toil, and if legendary lore is correct, Joseph had died early, and Jesus had held that household together. When he left it, he had no accumulation of wealth, and that little group of men, the 12 that were with him, they weren't wealthy men. They were for the most part in the fishing business. John had a private house in Jerusalem, but as a rule there was little money among the fishermen. So we have this picture of a little company of women of wealth taking care of the group. Now, we don't know how these women acquired their wealth. Scripture doesn't say. Perhaps they were like the virtuous woman of Proverbs 31 who was an entrepreneur and she worked hard to earn some money by being resourceful and wise. Perhaps that was the case. But regardless of how these women earned their money, The important thing to note is that each of them, being so grateful, so appreciative to the Lord for how he had delivered them, they chose to support him and his ministry financially. And what we learn from this, in terms of Christ's model for ministry, is that it is believers, those who have been saved by the grace of God, those who have been transformed by the grace of God, who are responsible to financially support the work of the Lord. We don't look to the world to do this. It is God's people who do this. You see, it's a biblical principle that those who are called into a full-time ministry who are thereby not able to work outside of their ministry to raise funds, they are to be financially supported by those who they minister to. Jesus himself said this in Luke 10, verse 7, The laborer is worthy of his wages. Paul makes it even more specific when he writes in 1 Corinthians 9.14, So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. In addition, Paul wrote Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.17 and 18, a guidance about taking care of elders, pastors. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So how does all of this apply to you? Well, in terms of supporting your ministry, you'll very rarely ever hear me say this, but I'm going to say it now. It has no application for you unless you're a full-time Christian worker, unless you're in full-time Christian service, and that's your vocation. Otherwise, it just doesn't apply to you because you're not dependent upon the financial support of others. You earn your living another way. However, what does apply to you? If you're a Christian, someone who's been saved, someone who's been transformed by Jesus Christ, what does apply is that you are responsible to financially support those who minister to you. Now, I seldom speak about money, but when giving and finances are in the text of Scripture, then I am compelled, I have to, under the Lord, speak about this. These women were ministered to by Jesus. He delivered them from grave circumstances, and so out of love, out of gratitude for all that he had done for them, they made sure they took care of him financially. That's exactly what the New Testament teaches all believers should do. They are responsible to financially support those who minister to them by teaching them the word of God. Paul said this in Galatians 6.6, the one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. In other words, if you've been blessed spiritually by someone's ministry, then make sure you share your material blessings with them. That's exactly what Paul said. Talking about Now, if you're new to the concept of giving as I was when I first became a Christian many years ago, I never heard about it. I didn't have any understanding of it. Nobody had ever said anything to me, but I found out about it. If you're new to the concept of giving, then you need to understand what the New Testament teaches about giving. And it's really not complicated. It's, actually, it's quite simple. Contrary to what many people think, the New Testament does not teach that believers are commanded to give a tithe, which is 10% of your income. The tithe is an Old Testament command. In fact, it was a mandatory tax. It was not a love offering. It was a mandatory tax given solely to the nation of Israel. And listen, there wasn't just one tithe they were commanded to give. There were actually several tithes they had to give, which came out then to close to, get this, 30% of their income close to that it was really like 28 percent that was the tithe that was a tax but in the new testament which is written to the church not written to israel there is not a single statement commanding a believer to give 10 percent of their income to support the work of the lord the bible says pay your taxes romans 13 but that's not this we're not in a theocracy like israel was Instead, it lays down two primary principles when it comes to giving. First one is found in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2. I said this was simple, just two verses, and the principles are clear in them. Paul said, on the first day of every week, each one of you, notice, each one of you, meaning every believer, is to put aside and save as he may prosper, that no collections be made when I come. Paul said, when I get there, I don't want you taking collection. Just every Sunday when you gather as a church, You're to give your offering. And that's the principle for us. When we gather on Sundays, we give our offerings. We have the two boxes back there. We give our offerings. So how much does Paul tell you to give? 10%? Well, that's not in the text. He leaves the amount up to you. He leaves the amount up to you. Instead, he simply says that you are to give as God has prospered you. That's the principle Meaning, give in proportion to what you earn. If you earn a lot, then give more than others. If you earn less, then give less than others. If you get a raise at work, then increase your giving. If you get your salary cut at work, then decrease your giving. That is in proportion. We call this grace giving. It's not a a tithe. It is give as God has prospered you. The second primary principle about New Testament giving is found in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7. Each one, notice once again, if you're a Christian, you're to give. It's a, it is a command. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. In other words, whatever amount you decide to give, what you've purposed in your heart, based on how God has prospered you, you decide what you're going to give. Paul says you have to do it with the right attitude. Don't give grudgingly. Meaning what? Meaning don't give because you feel pressured into it. You feel pushed into giving. Don't give because you resent giving, thinking about how much money you could spend on yourselves if you didn't give your offering. Instead, Paul says, give cheerfully. What does that mean? It means to be happy. Be happy that you have the opportunity to give. Give with heartfelt enthusiasm for the privilege of giving. Because you're not giving to a man. You're not giving to a church. You're giving to Jesus Christ himself out of gratitude for all that he's done for you. One of the things I try to remember to do when I place my offering in the the box back there is to say something like, Lord, I'm giving this to you because... I love you. This is my love gift to you. Thank you for what you've done for me. And sometimes I think, and I even say this in my heart to the Lord, Lord, there's a lot of things I could think of to spend this money on for myself, but I'm not going to do this. This is for you. We're to give cheerfully. We're to give with a happy heart, as we tell children. We're to give that way to the Lord. My friends, if you want to be a part of a ministry that's patterned after Christ's ministry, then you have to do exactly what these three women mentioned in our text did. You have to contribute to the Lord's work out of your private means. Giving is not intended to be a burdensome task. It's a responsibility that brings great joy because it's one way of saying to Jesus, thank you for all that you've done for me. I love what Campbell Morgan wrote about these women. He said, It seems to me as though that little group of women will always have an honored place in the glory land because they took care of the Lord of glory during those years of earthly ministry. Isn't that precious? And while our giving doesn't care for the Lord in his earthly ministry because he no longer is carrying out an earthly ministry in the flesh, our giving still supports his work because that continues carried on by his church and giving honors him, honors him. So, in these three little verses at the beginning of Luke chapter 8, they shouldn't be baffling to you anymore. They were to me earlier in the week, but not now, because we learned some very significant truths about Christ's ministry as a model for our own ministry. Therefore, find a ministry. Christ has saved you and equipped you to have a ministry. Find it, and then follow his approach have the same method, share the gospel with all, have the same message, make sure that you're preaching Christ as Lord and King, the only way to enter his kingdom by repentance and faith, have the same strategy, train others, and have the same approach to financial support he had, which is that those who have been ministered to are to support those who minister to them. Now, if you're not a Christian, then I realize that you're listening to this and you're thinking, what in the world? Is this about? (laughs) If you've never been converted to Christ, then none of this means much to you. I get that. But what you need to see is that Jesus Christ can transform your life and save your soul for all of eternity. Just as he did for these three women. He delivered them from demonic possession. How horrible is that? Seven demons living in Mary of Magdala. He delivered her from that and from sickness. Serious sickness he delivered these women. Just as he did that, he can deliver you from something far more serious than that. God's eternal wrath. Jesus died on the cross in payment for sin. God poured out his wrath on Christ so that those who trust him as their savior will be delivered from his judgment. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal savior, I urge you to do so today. Today is the day of salvation. Right now, call upon him. Trust him. If you'd like to speak to one of our pastors about this, then just see me as we close the service. And I'll ask if you're one of our elders here or an elder intern, just come and stand by me as we close. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what looks like a few random verses thrown together is actually a precious message that... You tell us your philosophy of ministry. Lord, help us to follow it. I know that some might be intimidated by thinking about discipling others, but I pray that they will have a heart to do what's right and have the joy of doing what's right. I pray, Lord, for those who perhaps, though they earn money, have never thought about ministering by sharing their money to support their ministry, the ministry of those who minister to them. I pray that you will move them to do what's right. I pray that you'll help us to preach the same message, to preach, to have the same methodology of sharing the gospel with all. And I pray, Lord, at the end of the day that we might honor you in all that we say, all that we do. And I pray for those who have never placed their trust in you. I pray that you'll, just as your word said, Lord Jesus, as the Father has given me some, that they will come to me. No one can come to the Father unless they be drawn by him. So we ask you to draw some to yourself. Even today, that they might be saved, saved from your wrath, no longer children of wrath, but children of God. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.